everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Anything But Typical podcast. So this is going to be a really fun one. Everyone's a fun one. Quite frankly, we don't have any bad guests on here. And so Chris Fido is going to be our guest today. He's a patriot. He is an entrepreneur. He's a good guy. And he is in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, this region. So anyway, we're so thrilled to have you on here. And so Chris, we're going to start with a question. You and your family are out doing something that you love to do apart from Sheets Laundry Club and what you're doing, you know, consumed by with the, the business. You're out having fun. Somebody sees you and they say, hey, that's Chris Fido." They start talking about you, not realizing you can overhear everything that they're saying about you. What would you want somebody to say about you? Um, I, I think ultimately, I, I hopefully something positive for starters. But I, I think that positive would be that you know that um, they they believe in in what my wife and I are doing, um, not only in business but in life. Um, that we're making a positive impact and a role uh, within our community, within our customers within our family within our church um so ultimately it's just hopefully that people um you know believe believe in us and our mission and our our, our overall goal man i love that yeah you are making a positive impact i also want to do a quick shout out to daniel zimmer for introducing us to you um that has been really fun he actually sent me a note this morning so uh, thank you, Daniel, for making this intro. Charlotte is a great place for connecting good people to good people. Absolutely. So Ben, take it. Yeah. So for the listeners, Chris is co-founder and CEO at Sheets Laundry Club. And the place where I want to start is he also has over 20 years of experience in the U.S. Army. So so Chris, that's where I, I really want to begin this conversation is what led to you enlisting in the first place? Yeah, I, I grew up in a small town in Northern California. Uh, my brother went to college. He's three years older than me. Um, I, I saw my parents financially struggle to get him through college. Um, they worked a lot of extra hours to, to put him through college. And I, I think when I turned 18, I realized for me at the time, college really wasn't something I was 100% sold on. Uh, my brother was a bookworm. I was more of a hands-on kind of kid. Um, I was working at an auto parts store. I was into cars. Um, but I also realized I was in small town, Placerville, California, and I, and I wanted to get out of Placerville. Um, and, and I, I just honestly took a, a friend of mine to the recruiter for six months every day. And I told the recruiter, don't bother me. Don't bother me. I, I don't want to join. You're going you're gonna to have to pick them up yourself if you keep, keep hounding me. Um, and then my friend happened to get stationed over in Germany. He sent me a, uh, back in the day, they do these postcard things. He sent me a postcard and it was a picture of him on it. And he's holding a giant beer sign at 18, standing in Frankfurt, Germany. Um, <laughs> and I'm working at Craig and Auto Parts. And I said, man, that guy's got it made. And he was a, a crew chief on a Black Hawk helicopter. So literally that day, I drove down to the recruiting office and said, I want to go to Germany. Uh, I want to be a crew chief on a Black Hawk helicopter. What does it take? And, and that really started the process, just uh, getting me out of that town and, and trying something different. It's, it's interesting. You go from telling the recruiter, don't bother me to being in the military for 20 years, right? Obviously that's, that's a massive difference. At what point did you, did your mindset shift of not just joining, but also saying, Hey, I'm going to make a career out of this. I'm going to, I'm going to do over 20 years. 
That, that's a great question. And I don't know that it, it, it ever really shifted. Um, I initially enlisted uh, not as the Black Hawk crew chief because they didn't have the positions. I was a military police officer um, and I signed up for six years. Uh, did my first year in Bosnia, Herzegovina back in 96. I came back and said, I'm getting out. This is for the birds. Um, and then ended up doing three or four more years. I got an opportunity to ride in a Black Hawk and said, man, I'd love to do that. Um, figured out what it took to become a, a Black Hawk pilot and, you know, did all the schooling that was needed. Um, got picked up for flight school and, and that came with an additional five-year service obligation. So really that pushed me to about the 10 or 11 year mark. Um, and at that point, I was really weighing my options of getting out. I understood that in the civilian world, I could make more flying helicopters. Um, but then this thing happened uh, and it was my son. Uh, I had a son and realized that it was a horrible time for me financially um, to get out of the military. I didn't know if I could provide for him and things like that. So I ended up enlisting for, I think, three more years and, and extending. And at that point, I was um, over that that bracket. I think I had 13 years in, and really it just made sense financially um, to stay in for my family. And with that said, I, I absolutely loved everything I did. And I may not have loved the first two or three years as a private in the Army, um, but as, as you gain ranking over time and, and understanding and experience, um, it, it was a fun job. I mean, let's be realistic. I got paid to fly helicopters. Um, it, was, it was a pretty cool gig. So I, I, I just continued on until 20. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, you, t you alluded there of just being all over the world, right? Going to different places and having different experiences, seeing different things. One of the things that I know you you recognized was a the plastic of pro or the problem of plastics. So I want to leave it there so you can be the one to go into it. But can you talk to us a little bit more about what you saw and why that resonated with you? Yeah, the first time I it really resonated with me was in probably 1999. I was stationed in South Korea. Uh, a bunch of friends and I had a long weekend, so we traveled. and And I don't remember the beach, but it was on the western side of South Korea. We took a train. Um, and the whole goal was, you know, I think I'm 21 years old. It was just literally to go to the beach for the weekend with a bunch of people. And we got to the beach and it was littered with trash, um, from the China sea. Um, and it was just a mile of trash that you could see and, and the beaches were just covered in nastiness. And, and some of the resorts have kind of pushed it out and barricaded so you could swim in the water, but none of us were getting in that water. It was, it was disgusting. And, and most of that was plastic. Uh, and that was just really my first eye opening to the difference between, you know, the United States um, and some other smaller countries that were that were really fighting this plastic crisis. Um, moving forward um, to 2008, 2009, correction, 2007, 2008, um, I was we went to Iraq for 18 or 15 months um, during that time frame, you know, the U.S., was not removing trash that we brought over there. We were burning it. Um, so every installation across the desert had football field sized burn pits. Um, in most of those burn pits, it's 130, 140 degrees over there were plastic water bottles that were, um, that we were consuming. We weren't drinking the water. So you can imagine the volume uh, of water bottles in these pits. Um, it was a constant black smoke that was rising up from the burn pits. Um, as a Blackhawk pilot, we actually use those as checkpoints. At night, you could see the burn pits when you were coming in under the NVGs. Um, during the day, you could see the smoke. Um, so we would actually use that um, to the tower. You know, we're, you know, burn pit um, inbound for, for runway 24. So 
with that said, all that black smoke would, would just, it goes up to about 800 to a thousand feet and it just kind of smolders out all over the place. Well, that's where we were flying every day. Um, so during that process, myself and unfortunately about 4 million other veterans to this point um, are suffering long-term uh, and permanent and fatal, fatal damages from these burn pits. Many people have died from cancers. Um, and, and I was one of those to come back. My run completely slowed down. I used to be able to run a 14 to 15 minute, two mile. Um, and I struggled to just run the bare minimum after that. And I couldn't figure out, I thought, you know, maybe just being out of shape. Um, but after six months, it didn't work. I started going to a pulmonology and, and understanding that I was one of many at the time. It was not really recognized. And the doctor would tell you what he thought it was. But of course, the, the Department of Defense would tell you otherwise. Um, but it's since been proven and, and Congress has passed the bill for this. Uh, but that was really the, the changing point in my life. Um, after 08 coming back, my wife and I decided to you know, rid plastic from our homes. And uh, I started learning more about plastic and the dioxins and everything that comes from them um, and, and didn't really do anything about it other than my personal life um, until we, you know, uh, came up with the, the concept for Sheets Laundry Club. Yeah. So before we go into Sheets, um, can you talk, and I, because I think this would be good for the listeners to be able to hear, so maybe they can take a couple things away and make some changes themselves. But what were some of those changes that, that you were able to implement in your own life to uh, to go more in that direction? Yeah. Um, so it really just making conscious decisions. You know, it was as simple as going to the grocery store and um, it, it's easy to grab the, the $2.99 bag of pla plastic bag of apples or bananas and throw them in your cart. So we didn't do that. We would go and buy the, the bananas or the the, the apples that were in the little cardboard sleeve, or we'd put them in a paper bag ourselves. So just making active decisions, going to the checkout at the grocery store and asking for paper bags instead of plastic bags, you know, choosing to get a water filtration system in our home so we didn't have to buy plastic bottles. We would fill up, you know, a Yeti bottle uh, or, or whatever at the time was, you know, we would bring our own water with us. Um, when we go to the store today, we still choose to, to pay more for the aluminum bottles that are available over the plastic. Um, today, my wife has gotten much better at it. We buy bamboo, um, you know, toilet paper, paper towels, things like that, that are packaged plastic free. Um, there's a, a whole array of items in your household you can actually purchase now that are really not any more expensive than, than what you're finding in the the market that are wrapped in plastic. So it's just continuing to make those active decisions when your purchasing habits. I mean, we can't avoid it a hundred percent, but we always look for alternatives first. Yeah. It, I think that aspect of what you did is where most people, if they're going to do anything would stop, right? How can I make a change in my own life and help impact a little bit, but you had a bigger vision. You wanted to have a greater impact and which eventually led to uh, Sheets Laundry Club. What, what was your mindset when you were looking at creating something, right? Whether you had Sheets Laundry in your mind exactly, or if it was just, I want an impact type company. Why take that extra step and go bigger than just your own household? Yeah, I definitely wanted an impact style company. Sheets Laundry Club wasn't necessarily um, on the radar at the time, we were still coming up with ideas and concepts. Um, but for me, and we deal with this every day on social media, when I talk to anybody at a restaurant, um, 
it, it's easy to say, I, I can't make a difference. Like my one purchase isn't going to make a difference. Well, if 330 million people in America have that idea, then you're absolutely right. We're not going to make a difference. Um, when I talk to investors about this business idea and this business model, everybody said, well, look, you know, people, the masses aren't going to, aren't there to make this change. And I said, well, we don't know if we don't try. Um, because I, I, I personally, I can't make a difference by myself and my household in the plastic crisis. But I told people, you know, if we can get people to, to bite into this concept and educate, then we can make an impact, obviously, which we're slowly doing um, with Sheets Laundry Club. But that's, that's the whole mindset was we have to educate consumers and, you know, in volumes, you make an impact. And, and that's what we're doing now. Yeah, no, I love that. I'm just curious. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry, buddy. You're fine. I, I'm just curious, Chris. Um, you know, you talked about your upbringing in California and how your your parents struggled to work. You know, you went from working in an auto parts store to deciding, hey, I want to go in. And I want to have something to do with Black Hawk helicopters. Well, that that even got delayed, which is really interesting. That that dream and that desire, but you eventually realized it. Did did you have entrepreneurism in on the radar or in your family that that was a spark of an idea, or did it become a necessity, or you know? Talk to us about how that flame got lit. Yeah, I, I didn't have it in my family. I, I'm the first and, and only business owner that that I know of um, through my family. Um, it, it wasn't there. I'm a my blue collar family. Um, you know, my dad worked for a, was a lineman on a phone company. And my mom was a receptionist at a doctor's office. Um, my brothers are, are school teachers. So it, it wasn't in the gene. Um, I, I think it really started for me. Um, probably about five years before retirement. And ironically, I was I was a big NASCAR fan um, and I've always been a motorhead. So I was playing around in the garage one day and I made, you know, those little 124th diecast NASCARs. I used to strip them down and repaint them and I would make them look um, like cars that were smaller drivers that didn't have a car made after them. And I just made one for fun one time and I put it on eBay um, and I think I, I had maybe a hundred dollars into the car and I sold it for like 500 bucks. And then the next thing I know, I had an wow. assembly line in my garage. So on the weekend I was doing eight, nine, 10 of these and I was getting requests um, from actual NASCAR team owners. Um, that's, that's how one of the co-owners and I here met. Um, he owned a, a NASCAR cup team for a while and he reached out to me through eBay and I made cars for his team and his driver. Um, I made Corey LaJoya car. Um, so I was doing this and it was kind of a side hustle in the garage. And I think that really clicked to me. Like when I get out, I don't know that I want to fly helicopters. Um, I, I want to own my own business. And I did. I opened a, a brick and mortar here in Mooresville, uh, North Carolina, prior to Sheets Laundry Club. Um, so that was really, I think, the driving point that changed me and said, hey, you know, the, there's so much opportunity out there in this world. Um, for me personally, I just didn't want to be stuck to a paycheck and working for the man anymore. I did it for 20 years. Um, and I was willing to take a little risk. And it was a challenge because my wife is 100, well, let me rephrase, was 180 degrees the opposite of that. She's definitely um, happy with the the guaranteed paycheck. Um, and I'm a little bit more of a risk taker. So it created a lot of ripples for, for several years. 
Yeah. So talk about that, because that is an interesting dynamic that uh, we haven't really explored a lot of. Um, but there is a tension uh, between in a spouse, you know, in a household where, where you've got a risk taker and somebody that's risk averse. And usually, <laughs> now, not always, but usually one attracts the other. We've had a couple uh, a few people, including Ben, where, you know, husband and wife are both entrepreneurs. Well, you know, they're both risk takers. And then that has its own dynamics, too. But walk us through, like, how did you deal with some of that? You know, how did both of you kind of work through that little bit of a, a challenge? Yeah. Um, so it, it was a some things made it easier um, due to my lung damage. I wasn't really able to get a civilian flight physical uh, to continue to fly afterwards. Well, my entire you know career was based on flying, so I didn't really have a, a skill set to just jump into corporate America and become a banker or you know a real professional skill set. I'm, I'm a pilot by trade, and if you can't do that, then you've got to figure out how to make a living. So I, I looked at franchises probably about a year and a half before retiring. Um, and my thought process, and I think it was a comfort zone for my wife, I was like, look, if we go into a franchise, it's it's kind of a structured business model. We're going to have the support we need above, um, but it also gives us the opportunity to grow and scale a business um, locally as, as much as we want or we can, um, but we still have that support structure. Um, I think she was comfortable with that idea because initially I was ready to start my own business and she was like, you're crazy. You have no idea how to even log into QuickBooks, let alone run a business. Um, so so we did. We actually opened what's called Painting with a Twist and it was a paint and sip franchise. My wife is an artist. Um, so it was a franchise that kind of uh, met her skill set and met my desires. Um, so I ran the business. Um, I was the, the back end, if you would, and she was the face of the business. Um, we ran that for about four years and um, the, the franchise completed our franchise agreement. And through that process, um, I started getting the wild hair for um, moving away from that franchise and, and starting Sheets Laundry Club. Um, and it was hard because my wife was not um, excited about this brand, this, this brand concept. She says, you know nothing about the Internet. And you know nothing about laundry detergent. What can go wrong? Um, you know, and if you look back, I could have asked a thousand people. There was one person, literally one person that was my investor that actually believed in me and the concept. Everybody else, everybody, all my friends from the military, they said, you're crazy, man. Like, that's that's not going to work. You're not going to be able to compete with Procter & Gamble. Um, it, it, I think, and that, and that comes like you've got to believe in yourself. Um, and, and it created a lot of animosity uh, between my wife and I. Um, we did not speak for, for long periods of time as I continued to pursue this. She was really eager for me to go back and find a, a career with a steady paycheck. Um, so I worked for another two years without a paycheck while she worked um, another side job or worked a full time job until um, she's actually started getting some traction. And now she is helping me run this on a daily basis. So my wife and I are, are the two primary people running Sheets Laundry Club right now, uh, which in itself is another um, challenge, which when you look at people are like, God, how do you run a business with your spouse? Um, and it's it's creating boundaries. She has her lane. I have my lane. Um, I don't overlap into her lane um, and she doesn't overlap into mine. And, and we learned that through the first business model. Um, you know, she's in charge of the warehouse, the people, the fulfillment, 
when I go in there and I start making changes, I hear about it when I get home. Um, so, so we're very versed at, at, you know, separating work from pleasure, which is a challenge, but it's also rewarding at the same point. Yeah, it's, it's something that we've had other uh, guests on before that own or have owned businesses with a spouse. And that comes up time and time again, right? How difficult it is to turn it off when you leave and you can always have conversations and having to create these lanes. But it's not a it's not a thing that you know right away. So exactly what you talked about makes a lot of sense of that point of contention and just chipping away and getting to the point where now you can run this thing together is is quite the journey. It's pretty incredible. It is. So let's pause for a second and actually explain to the listeners what Sheets Laundry is, because we're talking about it and not everybody's going to know exactly what it is. So, so talk a little bit more about what you guys do, what you guys offer. Yeah. So Sheets Laundry Club is a plastic-free um, alternative to the laundry space. So we... Um, Liquid laundry detergent as a whole, as we know, comes in plastic jugs. It's it's 90% water, 10% um, cleaning agents inside. Um, so we figured out how to remove the water from the laundry detergent. It, it starts out as a liquid even here, um, but it's dehydrated on some giant machines. It's bound by polyvinyl alcohol, which is the same component that you see in a Tide Pod, um, the outer component. That's what holds ours together. So we now package 50 sheets, which is equivalent to about two and a half ounces of liquid, into a cardboard box. Those sheets get thrown into the washing machine and they dissolve um, just like a pod would, um, or in, and they make the suds just like liquid would. Um, so they dissolve almost instantly, but they're packed with the same amount of enzymes and surfactants that are found in mainstream detergents. We just figured out how to remove the water. Um, it's obviously for convenience, but really the, the whole premise was to remove plastic from it. Um, we've since learned it's great for RVs, high rises, you know, if you've got to travel. Um, but that was the intent was to remove plastic from uh, the laundry space. Uh, if, if you think about it, and that's where I think I had a vision that, that others didn't. Every house you drive by in America has laundry detergent in it. Not every house has beef jerky. Not every house has wine. Not every house has, you know, beer, all these other subscription model ideas. So I wanted uh, a subscription model idea that fit every consumer or every every American in some capacity. Um, so we started with a laundry sheet in 2019. We were working out of a garage. Um, the goal was to sell 25,000 boxes in our first year. We sold um, close to a quarter million. Um, we then since expanded and, and we are constantly expanding and figuring out how to remove um, not only laundry items, but household cleaning items that are regularly packaged in plastic. We're now package them in recyclable plastic-free material, such as scent boosters, dryer sheets, you know, typical dryer sheets are all, all coated with um, the, the softening agents on plastic. Um, we now do it on a, a cellulose, which is, you know, plant-based and completely biodegradable. Um, we've added deodorants, body soaps, dishwasher tabs, eco boosters. Um, we're going to be launching washing machine cleaners this year. Um, these are all categories where Right now, we're one of the only companies to provide alternatives. You get the same product, the same clean, the same price, no plastic. So that that's really been the, the premise of what we're doing. And it's been successful so far. And we're um, just hanging on for the ride. I've got a couple uh, questions and thoughts based on, on that. Really interesting. By removing the water, you're removing the 
the bulk of the weight from a shipping perspective. I mean, what you're also doing is dealing with just the shipping constraints and, and, you know, uh, fuel efficiency, quite frankly, you know, I used to do a lot of work with Yokohama tire and tires are heavy and they're bulky. They, they just take up space, you know, (laughs) and there's not really an efficient way of moving them, but it's what, what it is. So I think that's just ingenious. Um, so kudos to that. What I do want to do, though, is I want to go back to a little bit of the the tension that you talked about and like, all right, so you have this itch that needs to be scratched of entrepreneurism. You, you have an idea. Everybody says, ain't going to work, except one person besides yourself believes in you. And even your wife doesn't believe in you at this point, man, that is a lonely stinking place to be. And you've got a lot of hills that you got to climb and a lot of boulders to be pushing up those hills. How did you do it? You know, what kept you going and how did you and your wife eventually kind of reconcile because that could have that could have been pretty disastrous. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, really, now, now that I look back, I was, I really was putting my marriage um, probably on the brink of divorce um, because it created a, a lot of ripple effects. Um, one of the one of the positive aspects, you said, you don't you don't have a lot of friends. Well, I, I hadn't lived in North Carolina very long um, when we worked in a brick and mortar that was seven days a week. Well, good thing is I didn't have a lot of friends here, um, so I didn't have a lot of of haters here. It was people that. Um, I had served with, I talked to him on Facebook or we'd visit on occasion and I, I would share the idea. Um, I, I think it, it it's it's the hardest thing to do in life and it it's believing in yourself. I really did a lot of research. I understood that um, the value of laundry detergent, I really believed, I, I, I've done so much research on Dollar Shave Club and how they've disrupted um, the razor industry. And, and a lot of my research that I did was understanding the laundry space, how big it was. It's one of the the biggest, it's, it falls under cosmetics, but it's one of the biggest industries in the world. Um, in the U.S. alone, I think it's around a $200 billion a year business. Um, and for me, it was realizing that it was an industry that hadn't been disrupted. Um, you know, Procter & Gamble is, is obviously the king there. Um but there, there's, there's many smaller off brands, but I realized it hadn't been disrupted. And in the back of my head, I really said that there's an opportunity here. And, and it started out, you know, we had a product that didn't clean at all. Um, we went to the manufacturers and some enzymes we learned that we have to heat the, the sheet at 140 degrees to dehydrate it. Well, some enzymes don't work well with the heat. So it was killing the enzymes. Surfactants weren't attaching properly. So we went back and forth with a manufacturer for better part of the year um, testing. And we have a laboratory in Ohio that does all this laundry testing for us. And we'd come back and the results, I mean, I I really remember talking to the guy the first time and he said, this cleans is good. It's just not putting anything in it. Um, Literally your results were the same. It's just putting water in the washing machine. Um, So nothing's working here. Um, And I think that's where a lot of the like give up, go get a job came. Um, because I've got high hopes. I've finally got this sample in hand that we've made and I go send it off and, and it's, it's, it's a big goose egg. Um, and that's where I probably almost, I, I almost quit about 10 times too, because of that, because I, 
I was writing up debt that, that I couldn't afford um, personally um, because investors weren't coming in on on it at that point. It was it was all Chris trying to figure it out. So I was writing up credit card debt. Um, and then I almost felt like I'm so committed financially that I've got to make this work. Um, and then finally, you know, tests started coming back and it's like, all right, it's cleaning better. It's cleaning better. And then we finally found protease, an enzyme um, that has a high temperature point. And that was really the turning point for us. Um, it cleaned really well. Uh, and it was like lights out for me. Like I literally, I probably could have fell in the bed and just like you see in one of those love movies where the girl falls back in the bed and she's in love. I mean, that's what it was like when I got the paper, I was so excited um, and, you know, ran over to my, my buddy that was thinking about partnering with me. And um, it was really off to the races then, but still, you know, we launched in December 19 COVID hit. Um, so supply chain was disrupted. Um, so it was, it, it was an uphill battle for, for several years. It was a, it was a lonely place. I'll, I will tell you, I didn't have a lot of friends. Uh, I didn't have anybody that believed in me. My wife, um, God bless her during the, the beginning of COVID was miserable in her job. Um, she was a vet tech. She went to college. She's a registered vet tech in, in the vet clinic due to social distancing, a workspace. It just made the job so hard to do. Um, you had to pick up the pet in the parking lot. You had to quarantine this quarantine that and she was miserable. Um, and somehow we were shipping 150 to 200 orders a day. And I was doing it all by myself, packing the orders, answering customer service tickets, ordering inventory. And I said, look, we're making a little bit of money. I'll pay you what the vet clinic's paying you if you'll help me out. And I, I couldn't hire anybody else because of COVID. And, and she did. She took the job. And um, I think she, I don't think she really believed in it still for another year, but um, she got on my team, which was, was a huge win for me and a morale boost um, that we're on to something. So you so battled not only the fact that nobody was believing in you, but also the, I mean, you didn't go to school for chemical engineering or anything like that, right? So the, you're also battling this learning curve. So how, how did you handle that? Because you're going on this journey trying to figure something out and yet you don't have the background to be able to figure it out yourself, right? So right. how did you handle that? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the testing was great. So the manufacturers that, that that have the capability to make these do have chemistry backgrounds, but they have chemists there. Right. Yeah, of course. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you, Google, Google, a lot of time on Google and just understanding, you know, so so we didn't want to use a lot of the synthetic um, chemicals that are found in mainstream detergent. So it was trial and error. Like, you know, you're literally looking at some of the competitors that are in more of the green space and saying, what are they using um, as their surfactants and enzymes? And you're, you're playing around. Um, so that's really what it was. It was just like, hey, and it, it sounds terrible, but it was on Google. And it was like, try this surfactant. You know, this company is using it. They have great success and they're in the in the, the green space and bam, it doesn't work. And and that, that's all it was. It was the power of Google going on Amazon, looking at green laundry detergents and looking at their ingredients and, um, you know, not trying to steal their recipe, but just understand the, the surfactants and enzymes that they were using and trying to find something that would withstand that heat. And that's really all it was, was just sitting on a laptop, making a lot of phone calls. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure your chemistry background or your chemistry knowledge is significantly greater than it was a few years ago. <laughs> um, enough to be dangerous, probably. Right. <laughs> um, so with Procter & Gamble being the, uh, the the dominant figure here, um, 
what are you doing to be able to have, like you said, the first year selling two or shipping 250,000 uh, boxes, things like that. What are you doing to be able to compete against the Procter and Gamble's of the world? Uh, I, I think the the first and foremost important thing to compete with with anybody is offer a product that has the same efficacy values uh, of what they're selling, um, and then figuring out a way to do that at a price point that's a little bit more competitive. Um, the green space, it's no secret that it's typically 2x the price to, to play in the green space. Um, that's why a lot of these companies don't get a lot of traction. So that was one of the key components to success was figuring out how to offer a product that worked as well at a, at a more affordable cost. So that's that's been the recipe for success from day one, and it it's working. And then how about on the just brand awareness and marketing side, right? Because you can have the best product in the world if nobody knows about it you're going to sell zero. So what are you yep. doing on, on that front? Yeah. And that's, that's the hardest part um, is educating the consumer on a new product. Um, I use the example and Daniel Zimmer actually uh, kind of started this, this example, but it's um, when the iPhone came out, nobody wanted the iPhone because it was a computer that nobody wanted. We already had a computer. So it was an item we all wanted and needed. We just didn't know we needed it at the time. Um, so we do a lot of UGC content uh, on, on Meta, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and it's really just educational awareness to a consumer to understand exactly what a laundry detergent sheet is. That's our biggest battle still to this date um, is, is educating a consumer. Um, 99 out of 100 people I could walk down the street today would have no idea what it was. Um, they confuse it with a dryer sheet. Right. So still the biggest challenge and it's UGC content demonstrating what the product is, how it works is, is been our recipe to success to this point. Yep. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, another thing that I'm curious about, cause we've seen this with a couple other impact businesses is the attraction of other like-minded people, right? So it was you, just you and your wife at the beginning doing this, but now you have other people that are part of the sheets laundry universe. Um, how has that helped from attracting talent, retaining talent, things like that? A lot easier now than, than it was. Uh, in the very beginning, um, it, it's hard to, and I, I think Gary would, would agree this, it's hard to hire people in a startup business uh, because people are looking for security and there's no security in a startup. Um, I mean, I, I literally was using my military retirement to make payroll the first six months a few times. Um, so it's very hard to hire talent because you can't afford it. Um, as we've grown and, and people have gotten the name, we literally run interviews on our social media girl, Jamie, she's phenomenal. Um, and she saw on indeed that we were hiring for a social media manager. Um, she was writing for vanity fair, um, in New York city. And she was excited about this job because she was familiar with the product, what we were doing. Um, the first zoom call, she was literally like a, a kid in a candy store, excited about it. Um, you can see the passion and, and she was passionate about our mission. Um, so the talent is much easier to get as we've grown and, and the name is out there. With that said, we're still not a brand name. We're working to become a brand name uh, or a household, daily household name. Uh, but much easier as you've grown and, and people have seen um, the success of what you're doing. So you had an appearance on Shark Tank, which is actually one of my favorite shows. My wife and I love that. You know, I compromise when I'm watching Hallmark or D, you know, uh, you know, DIY uh, home improvement shows that she loves. 
but we both love Shark Tank. So talk to us about how did that experience happen and what was that like? Yeah, um, to your point, always been a giant Shark Tank fan. Um, I've watched it, I wouldn't say religiously, but I've watched it consistently since season one. Um, and it, I really, in my own head, I was like, man, where do people come up with these ideas to get on this show? Like, that's crazy. Like, um, all these little ideas. Um, my wife has never liked it. Um, so I compromised and watched Hallmark Christmas movies as well. Um, so we, I was just literally in the office and, and I think probably January, 2020, we were a little over a year old and I got an email from a Shark Tank producer asking if we had uh, any interest in exploring the opportunity of possibly going on Shark Tank. Um, almost deleted the email. I thought it was spam. Um, and I happened to just had my phone next to me and I looked up the guy on Instagram and I was like, well, this guy looks legit. He's at the set all the time and he's got pictures with all the sharks. Um, so I, was, I talked to my partner and he said, hey, it's worth an email or it's worth a worth a conversation. Um, had the first conversation and I, I, I'm guessing for, for Shark Tank and ABC, we had what they were looking for um in terms of sales in terms of business model in terms of um what sells for shark tank um so we moved forward filled out the paperwork um it, it was literally three months later we were in los angeles um filming it, it came fast it came quick it really consumed um a lot of time for 90 days we really weren't focusing on the business so there was some downsides to shark tank up front um, things were getting missed. Products weren't getting ordered in time um, because of the amount of work that it took to get on the show from the paperwork to the producers to the scripting. Um, it, it consumed so much time. Well worth it. Great experience. Um, and now to your point, the experience, um, it was interesting. So we were the first season back from COVID. Prior to that, they would fly people out. My understanding, you have to quarantine for 10 days in a hotel room and then go down and film. Um, ours was just the opposite. It was, it was California's laws at the time. This would have been June of 21. Um, so we had to be in the state of California less than 48 hours. So they flew us out on a Friday night. Chris and I, I think left Charlotte at like 5 PM. By the time we got to Los Angeles airport into our hotel, it was like 11 o'clock at night. Um, we shared a room. We had to be in the lobby at 5 AM. We took three COVID tests. Um, they drove us straight to the set, did makeup and hair, gave us a quick tour of the thing. And I think by 7.30 that morning, we were actually standing in front of the Sharks filming. Um, hadn't eaten anything since I'd left North Carolina. Um, hadn't had a cup of coffee. Um, we were we, we were out there for about 90 minutes, um, got our deal, moved on. And then they gave us a ride back to the hotel. We were back to the hotel by 11 o'clock that afternoon. Um, then on a plane back to uh, back to North Carolina. So it was quick. It was interesting. I will say it's um, what you see on the show is what you get. It's not uh, nothing set up. I didn't I didn't meet a shark until the minute those doors opened. Um, the music doesn't play in, in real life, um, but but everything else that you see is, is what you see is what you get. You're just out there a little bit, obviously a little bit longer than what what's aired. They have to clip it together. Um, but it was it was intense. Um, probably one of the most intense things I've ever done. Um, to be able to talk about your business that's only 18 months old for 90 minutes and understand every number that, you know, you wish you had a Gary sitting there talking to you or standing next to you to be able to um, talk through those numbers because you're trying to remember everything and um, and hope you can do it the best while 
um, looking at 80 people in the background and 40 cameras staring at you. It was an interesting experience, but it was great for growth, great for exposure, and, and, I, and I wouldn't change it for the world. How did you prepare for that? Because that is, I mean, you've been in some intense situations as a pilot, you know, in a lot of theaters of war, all of those things, like any of those things that helped you prepare mentally for this, because those guys are kind of ruthless. <laughs> Some of them are just ruthless and it'd be really easy to just have like, you know, brain blank <laughs> and like, uh Oh, and you know, you've seen that happen. Like, sure. What do you, how did you prepare? Uh, I think you know, the best way we prepared, and, and there, there's no checklist for it. We, again, this comes back to we we didn't focus on the business. We sat in the office and watched more Shark Tank episodes than you can shake a stick at. Um, and we really tried to look at some that were in the subscription model base, understand the questions they were being asked, um, took notes of that, and then understood, you know, understanding our whole subscription model from churn rate, retention rate, CPCs, you know, growth, margins. Um, a lot of them you can watch every episode. What's your what's you know what's your net profit? What's your gross profit? So understanding all those numbers and then going back to the CPA and saying what are these numbers because we don't even really know. We know we're making a little bit of money, not much. We're putting more in than we're getting out. Um, but I mean, our our CPA truly worked with us. We probably did six hours worth of calls with our CPA because we would just come up with a blanket list and we we had maybe a twenty page document and we started quizzing each other on on these questions and we have a board of directors here and they came in one day and um, we did a, a shark tank rehearsal and they grilled us for about an hour and a half. Um, and we learned a lot there because they asked a lot of questions that we didn't have. And that was maybe a week before we left. So we got into panic mode of, Oh my God, they just asked like 25 questions. We didn't know the answers to. Um, and there was questions out there that we, you just, you couldn't answer. You didn't know. Um, you did the best you could. Um, you don't lie. I think that's the key. Um, because the proof is in the pudding later on. If you get a deal, the papers are going to tell the truth. Um, and ultimately, you don't want to lie on national TV either and, and be that guy. Um, you don't want the whole world to think of you as a liar. So you you just give it your best effort. So talk to us about what happened after you appeared on the show. Because if I remember right, you had uh, an offer, right? We did. We got an offer from Daniel Lebeski. He was, uh, if you're not familiar, he's a guest shark. He's the CEO, was the CEO and co-founder, still a chairman uh, of Kind Snacks. Um, I believe he sold the majority to Hershey's uh, about two years ago. Um, but he he did give an offer. He loved the mission. And um, I, I think about two weeks after returning, everything settles in because the sharks are still out there filming for a few weeks. Um, but maybe 14 days after we had our first Zoom call with Daniel and his team. And um, you really just start the process then of working with his attorney and your attorney um, to send over, going back to what I said, sending over everything you just said on national TV. Now you're backing it up with paperwork um, and you're sending it for his team to review. Um, and that just kind of starts that whole process, um, which which is a long drawn out process just because there's a lot of moving pieces So you've gone through a little bit over four years, right, of actually being in, in business now. Mm -hmm. And you talked earlier about always growing, always adding more. Can you fill us in on what the vision you have for the future of this business is? 
So my ultimate vision, which is not what any investor wants to hear, uh, but my vision is different than than a typical businessman, and it's it's turning the tide on plastic pollution. Um, and and there's a little pun in there, but it's it's the truth because this plastic is going into our oceans, and that's what's destroying it. Um, my goal is for my grandchildren to walk down this, the supermarket and, and revolutionize the way laundry detergent's done. I, 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 again, this is where investors want to hear this. I hope that Tide one day has laundry sheets on the shelves. I hope Gain has laundry sheets on the shelves. I hope we walk down that aisle and it's all cardboard boxes. I hope that the legacy of what sheets um, and now others are doing changes the way industry practice is being done. Um, that's my ultimate goal. Um, you know, that that's that's my mission. But, you know, more short term, it's continuing to add products in the space. Um, we're, we're looking at doing a whole home cleaning line with, you know, disinfectants, bathroom cleaner, toilet cleaner, um, all in the plastic free or at least single use plastic free space. Um, we're, we're trying to be the example. Um, and if you would, the proof of concept for some of these fortune 500 companies that um, there's enough people out there um, to make your business model change. So you brought up a good point of how that partially conflicts with investors, right? So you, you go on Shark Tank, you get a deal, you have other investors, and yet this is what your vision is for the future. How do you balance the impact side of the business with running a successful, growing, profitable company? Yeah, um, I, I, for me, uh, I'm always impact driven first. Uh, I think if you do the right thing, everything will follow. Um, I'm, my motto here is treat people how you want to be treated. Um, that's what I tell everybody at work. Um, our whole philosophy and business model within from the employees to the innovation to the business side is completely different than you're going to find in corporate America. Um, I, I treat people how I want to be treated. I, I From the guy that cleans my toilets to the the COO, I, I know their kids' names. I talk to them on a daily basis. Uh, we sent our entire staff on a cruise down to the Bahamas in January during a slow week um, as a thank you. And these are people that you know have never even left America and, and now they're getting an opportunity to travel. Uh, we pay them well. We got them full medical early, long before the investors said, hey, we can afford medical. I said, well, we're gonna figure it out. Um, and it, it's just creating a culture that's different. And then on the business side, I'm constantly innovating and trying to figure out a way um, to bring new product lines in that are beneficial. By doing those two things, it rewards the investors because the business grows. If I'm chasing the almighty dollar, I feel like the business side will be more impacted on the mission. Um, so I've got a little different approach, I think, than a lot of other CEOs would take. Um, and that starts with the guy cleaning my toilets to my COO, to the product line, to the innovation, to the consumer. Those things, if everybody there is happy, the rest takes care of itself. Um, so I'm never, I'm never staring at the bank account trying to look at EBITDA and figure out. Um, with that said, I, I am always trying to figure out how to increase EBITDA because I understand um, that is part of running a business is increasing your growth and your margins. The more money you have, the more you can take that innovation and grow it. Um, if you're barely making ends meet, then you can't add new products. You can't make an impact. So. It all starts starts with the lowest guy on the totem pole and um, all the way to understanding every customer service ticket and not blowing those off as, eh, she doesn't understand. It's 
take those, we create an Excel spreadsheet. If it becomes a trend, then we need to fix that trend. Um, and that's that's how I'm growing this business differently than than maybe many would. And I, I think the investors overall are, are very happy with um, that process. Listening to your story reminds me a little bit of the founders of Whole Foods and what drove them, John Mackey and Renee Hardy uh, Lawson. And, you know, Amazon ended up buying them and culture definitely shifted. There's a Harvard Business Review uh, case study that should be in the making <laughs> based on that. And it's not to be disparaging on Amazon, but the culture shifted pretty dramatically. Um, but what you have, have decided and what you've described on how you're going to treat your employees sounded very similar to the way that Whole Foods are initially. And they they had a groundswell of people that came alongside them because of their mission and supported their stores. And they, they were wiped out initially from a flood, if I remember right. Um, but it was because the mission was so strong, it attracted the kind of employees as well as patrons of Whole Foods. So I think that you're onto something there, Chris. You know, your example with the, the Vanity Fair, you know, uh, social media person that you've got, it wasn't about the name in lights. It wasn't about, you know, big, huge budgets to go blow and spend and Quite frankly, a lot of people chase that stuff in the in the marketing world, but the heartbeat is the issue. And uh, I, I think you're really onto something there. And it's exciting to see that you've got other product lines going down that that path. And I think it's it's really easy to become a little fatalistic because if you look at the the pollution, the big polluters of those oceans most of it ain't the United States, <laughs> you know, right. there are developing countries. Well, what do we do about them? I don't know. You, you know, your, your approach has been, Hey, I can't deal with that. I can deal with my little sphere of influence and, and it's got a ripple effect. So I just, just want to say, I, I really admire what you're doing. I, I do want to go back to the the Shark Tank thing. So they they validated all of your numbers and all that kind of stuff. You got some great exposure from being on Shark Tank. Did you end up taking the deal? We did not. Um, for for us, you know, we we relied heavily on our attorney, um, but it just came down to he said you guys are way too far along um, to to sign a dotted line with this kind of. Uh, agreement he said you know that nothing nothing good long term his exact example was this deal is a great opportunity for uh the guy in small town kansas a, a town of 600 people that um, has no funding that came up with a phenomenal idea that has no marketing background no experience no investors no capital that's where this deal is phenomenal um, he said you guys already have a board of directors you're already a profitable business um, the volume of money he's given you for the amount of equity. And um, it doesn't make sense. Um, it, Daniel was a great guy. He was a phenomenal guy. We really did try hard um, to, to come to terms, but it, I, I wouldn't be running my business the way I am today. If we had closed that deal, it would have been 
um, running it the way investors and in corporate America wants to run it. And I, I wasn't going to give that up. Yeah, that's such, such a valid point, right? And, and it shows that what we've been talking about for about an hour is not just lip service, right? It's the fact that you're willing to turn something like that down to continue going in the direction that you believe is the right direction. That's, that's conviction. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been convicted since day one when, when everybody told me no. And um, again, I, 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 I tell everybody that I talk to in, in meetings or, or podcasts uh, and guest speakers, it's and our mom told everybody's mom told us treat people how you want to be treated and do the right thing. If you can do those and remember, you know, nobody, I, I think the army taught me that I had a bunch of terrible leaders, but I also had a bunch of phenomenal leaders um, and, and I, I'm able, and that's maybe something that the civilian world doesn't get. You work in corporate America for the same boss for 20 years. Um, you, you learn to love or hate him. Um, I've got so much variety of, of leadership that I was able to absorb the things that motivated me to keep going. And I'm able to remember the things that made me want to quit. Um, and I keep them in separate compartments. And if I find myself going down the trail of those things that made me want to quit, I'll step back and say, Hey, time out. Like that's, I already know in my head what those people are going to think uh, of me going in and doing that. Um, and it's, it's, I've had the same employees since day one. Um, I, I don't have, I don't, I'm not looking to hire people. I keep the same people and it's all treat people how you want to be treated. Mm -hmm. Respect is earned. It's not given. Yep. And, and we've seen too, especially recently loyalty of employees sticking with companies. If they believe in the culture and the mission of a company, that loyalty factor is dramatically larger also. So not only are you keeping because you're treating them the right way, they're also bought into your vision. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it resonates to your, your customers because um, I'm shipping 50 to 60,000 orders a month and, and we have less than, I mean, this is this is crazy. Thing. We, have, we ship 50,000 orders a month. We'll have less than five or six mistakes across that. Um, and that resonates to people are not only passionate about that, but they believe in, in me to, to make sure they get paid and they're keeping it, but they believe in the business. They're, they're happy where they're at. If you're not happy, um, and we got 46 products and you're throwing those in boxes and everybody's got an individual tag and you've got to, you know, get the right fragrance, the right soap and, and to pack 50,000 orders and, and have five or six mistakes, um, over a course of a month is phenomenal. Um, especially if you were to study the, you know, the subscription industry, it's a three to 5% mistake rate. We're not even a, a tenth of a percent. Um, and, and that all comes back to people are happy to come to work. Um, I'm not saying every single day is exciting. It's not, you know, roses and unicorns every day, but um, they love what they do. We treat them right. And, um, and I'm not better than them. You know, we, I don't, I don't act like I'm better than them. I, I, there's an old meme that says, uh, shows a, a CEO pulling up in his Lamborghini and it says, Hey, I, they say, Hey boss, I love your car. And he says, we love it too. And he says, that's great. And he says, if you guys keep working hard, I'll get another, if you guys keep working hard this time next year, I'll be able to get another one. Um, and, and that's just the opposite of how you want to be. I mean, you've got to be able to be the boots on the ground guy that's there first. And when we got busy order days, I'm packing them back there, which they yeah. hate. I love that example. And you even mentioned doing the right thing. Um, and we talked before we hit the record button about Hugh McCall 
fantastic uh, leader in this city who has his fingerprints all over the skyline, but but he doesn't take responsibility. He doesn't claim the glory of it. it. You know, he didn't put his name on stuff. He didn't have Bank of America plastered on every building that we occupied, which are most of those buildings in uptown Charlotte. Right. Um, you know, it's, it, but he walked among his troops. There was something about, you know, he's a Marine, your army. There's something about what you learned in the military that I think is really powerful. And if you just listen back and play back this tape of your snippet of, of life that we've just talked about in the last hour, everything kind of built on each other, you know, like nothing was lost. And, and I'm, I'm deeply saddened to know that you, you know, suffered uh, permanent lung damage. I'll still pray that you, you get healed for that, but um, that you, you experienced hardship in trying to serve. And that, that happens a lot of times, but it also was an inflection point that took you in another direction to where you're really making ripples out there uh, just in the lives of other people and especially your employees, but anybody that's buying your products. So I hope anybody listening to this goes and uh, checks out Sheets Laundry Club and probably you want to go to their website versus going on Amazon because their margins are better <laughs> when you go directly. <laughs> they are. <laughs> They are. And, and we're also in all the Harris Teeters as, as well as Meyer. I'm going down to Bentonville next week to talk to Walmart. Um, I've got Kroger later today. So we're we're making a, a big impact really quickly, which is exhausting and exciting all in one. And, and to your point, Hugh McCall is a phenomenal person. I'm fortunate, blessed to have spent an hour with him yesterday in his office. Um, just a, a legend in his own right. And in 30 minutes of our hour conversation. He was in the Marines from 1957 to 1959. I wasn't even alive, um, but we can have that connection and talk. Um, and you almost feel like you're on the same beach together. Um, and, and that's something that you can't have unless you've done it. Um, and it was, it was great. It was actually no different than me going to visit my friends that I was in the army with. It's just a, a bond um, that you develop and, and that we carry forward. And he, his principle and philosophy of running Bank of America um, was based on his experience in the Marine Corps. Um, he gave many examples of everything that he learned in the Marine Corps and how he implemented it into Bank of America and, and made it successful. And um, we're trying to do the same thing on a smaller scale and, and see where it goes. Well, thank you for your service, you Chris. Uh, we appreciate that. And I can say Hugh McCall was the best CEO uh, and best leader I ever worked under. Um, and he hired great people. And the best boss I ever had was Helen Eggers, who is still at Bank of America. So um, thank you again. Thanks for taking time to be with us, for making positive ripples out there. I, I hope that your dream comes true and that, uh, you know, P&G and all the, the big boys realize oh my gosh look how much money we could save just in shipping costs <laughs> even wow. if it was just from that pure bottom line on doing a dehydrated sheet versus 90 yeah. percent liquid that is heavy yep 
And that carbon footprint offset is so much lower as well. So it's it's a win-win across the board. And, and I, I think in due time, we'll we'll turn that tide. That's amazing. Chris, thanks so much for, for joining us. Uh, for all the listeners, be sure to go to uh, sheetslaundryclub.com. Check, check out the, the company and get started on your subscription. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you, everyone out there. Have a wonderful afternoon.